Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about the midterm elections. So I think a lot of us are surprised at how well Democrats did. But I don't think you're surprised because ahead of the election, you were really confident that the Democrats would do well. You were confident they would keep the Senate. You're confident they would have a great chance at keeping the House. I think you're the only person I talked to that thought that. (laughs) You also predicted 2020. And also, (laughs) you predicted Trump would win when all of us thought that was impossible. Well, you know, I don't rely on the polls. (laughs) So I think if anything, I mean, at the top is the highest level, uh, the polls are busted because all the pollsters are white dudes. And so... They are asking the wrong questions of the wrong people. And so it's really just implicit bias, quite frankly, that's that's producing these polls. And then people cling to them and have feelings about them. And they may or may not influence turnout, but they influence people's affect about voting and about elections and about the parties. And I saw a tweet today that I thought was really compelling that was like, if the polls are wrong, which of course they were, what do we make of the assessments about popularity, people's confidence in and job satisfaction of particular leaders. And so I think pollsters should be having a major crisis, Um, certainly Nate Silver, but all of the rest of the two had, I mean, just shitty pickers. They're just wrong. And they want to be wrong. Part of it is that they're buying their own psyops, right? Like the New York Times pre-wrote a bunch of headlines about how the Democrats were going to smash and ran them anyway. And it's a massive psyop to support the GOP, which is who lines their pockets. So I, I think that from a predictive standpoint, This is a moment where the emperor has no clothes and people who are watching politics, whether they're like, you know, in the weeds about politics as longtime politicos or whether they're sort of casual participants are having a sensibility about the collusion between legacy media and polls in producing the outcomes that they actually want. I mean, what was remarkable in this case is that the polls themselves largely were not that far off. Like the polls actually were pretty good this cycle. What happened was that because they were so bad in the previous couple of cycles, every pollster, like the New York Times, Nate Silver, Real Clear Politics, they assumed that the biases that were an issue in their previous polls were like still in place, right? So even though, yeah, so there was a lot of overcorrection to the right. But the thing about that is that a bunch of the races are also 50-50. And so anybody who has, and it's fine to hazard guesses on races that are 50-50. You'll notice that I don't, I don't generally do that. I'm like, it's toss-up, it's going to be turnout. It's toss-up, it's going to be turnout. Because you can't, if it's less than a thousand votes in a congressional district, you, you're just flipping a coin. That's, it's not, it's not sense, it's not sensible. It's not necessary really to prognosticate about those sorts of things. It is sensible to think about trends. And I would say the major trend of the midterm elections in 2022 was a rejection of Trumpism and an increasing awareness of authoritarianism creep in American politics, period. And I'm not saying that because I want to believe it to be true. You know, I mean, certainly we've recorded enough you know, podcast episodes where I'm like, ugh, these people, you know, how are they not in the streets about the democracy? And yet, when they did go to the polls, they overwhelmingly, in almost all the states that were not massively gerrymandered or had horrific electoral maps drawn, I'm looking at you, Florida, Ohio, and New York, they overwhelmingly rejected the MAGA stuff. 
people self-reported that democracy wasn't the biggest issue for them going into the polls. People were reporting inflation, crime as bigger like reasons for voting. But it actually turned out, I think, that anytime there was an election denier on the ballot or someone who was overtly authoritarian, like it, it, the Secretary of State races in particular, where there were um, some <laughs> discussion like with Jim Marchant, like saying that he would make sure Trump won in 2024, which, you know, doesn't bode well for a fair and free election happening in that in Nevada, uh, which is a swing state. So, I mean, I think overwhelmingly when even though like people weren't self-reporting that democracy was what was driving them to the polls. I think that's what swung a lot of races, actually. So where it was actually critical and extremism was happening, the Democrats came out. You know, one of the things I wrote about right before the election was, I don't think people understand how political realignment works. And if you'll recall, all the things I wrote on all the platforms for the public to read were like, political realignment is driven by the young. And so one of the things that the pollsters miss because they don't talk to young people because young people don't answer their phones because these assholes let our phones get polluted with spam and so nobody answers, is that young people were absolutely driven to the polls because of authoritarianism and abortion. And it wasn't captured in the polls because the pollsters aren't talking to the young people because they just write them off. But despite that, I mean, the youth vote, the 18 to 29, canceled out every single vote of every single 65 or older voter in the United States. Gen Z came out so fucking hard, swinging for democracy. And so as a consequence, at least the liberal talking heads at the end of the week were like, oh, the youngs, oh, the youngs. So, uh, so that's great because they absolutely saved democracy period, point blank, and also look for more initiatives to repress youth voter turnout. So that's going to happen. It's certainly already happening in places like Texas. And it's low-key happening in the South and other places. Like it certainly took the University of Arkansas forever to get a polling place on campus. But I do think that the youth vote is telling. I think it makes it very difficult to conceive of a, of a Republican win in 2024 it's a let alone some sort of sweep. Like the fact that the margin is so razor thin in both the Senate and the House, I think that that tells you that the loyalty to Trump has ended and is ending. I think that Rupert Murdoch and the Wall Street Journal and the press dumping so hard on Trump the day after the midterm election is an indicator that they're pulling their financial support. And I think it there's no future in 2024 that looks like some red wave materializing then either at all. So I, it's all good news for the Democrats. And it's good for Joe Biden. Crazy to say. Obviously, he's not my dude. And obviously, also, I think in some of those races, had Joe Biden come out harder for some of those candidates, the margin could have been wider. I think also he fucked up student loan debt, but that, that's fixable, but stupid. It's it's remarkable because there were a lot of things working against the Democrats in this midterm, like inflation, which generally benefits the right, uh, like sensationalized reporting on crime, which like got dialed way up during this election cycle. And, and also, yeah, and also the gerrymandering, right? Which is real. Which and, is the, of those things the most important part. <laughs> and the restrictive voting laws, right? So all of those were part of, I think, why people were biasing towards 
Republicans. They saw the redistricting. They saw new voter laws that were going to be problematic uh, for turnout in some districts that were pretty close in 2020. But even then, you know, Democrats managed a strong showing with conditions that you would think favored the right. So, I mean, it does make me optimistic for 2024. But the, the thing about young voters, you know, they definitely delivered this election. They turned out in smaller numbers than in 2020, though. And the Democrats are going to have to have them come out. It doesn't matter. That's not how presidential elections work. And especially with all the speculation about whether or not Joe Biden is going to run again. Uh, Spoiler, he's definitely going to run again. uh, They come out. I think that there is no world in which the voter turnout for Gen Z for the 2024 election is lower than 2022. It's not going to happen. They're going to come out for the presidential election. They always do. But I also think that means that at the local level, there is so much opportunity to do creative stuff because there is going to be a bunch of voter interest in the 2024 election. And there is all of this creative energy that came out of some of these uh, lower level races, state races that are so sexy. I really have not been as interested and excited about state level electoral politics as I am like this week. Abortion won everywhere it was on the ballot in all five states. It's amazing. Shocking. None of the abortion rights activists, perhaps the men's, right? Because they're male pollsters and they're, you know, on-air personalities don't want to talk about abortion. So they pretend like the Dobbs effect wasn't going to be real. But I mean, there is so much space. Oh, I mean, recreational marijuana one big. Um, there. Uh, there's space, I think, to build the left. But I also want to say that the dirtbag left was wrong because the center is what pulled through. It, even though there were some really amazing lefty victories that we're going to talk about in the podcast, the center held. And um, I think it's important to think through what it means that, you know, the moderates pulled through and did better than any other Democratic, you know, candidate in a midterm election in like forever. People are going to have to grapple with that. Because the centrism actually, not necessarily centrism as a political affect, but the center of the party did very, very, very well. Also, the fringes did well. So the left did well. So that is a narrative that has to be parsed. It would be more helpful to say that the center of the country is moving left on the whole than to shit on the moderates because they overwhelmingly also won their races. So they won in a lot of cases by very narrow margins though. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a blowout. Right. It wasn't a mandate. Um, It could have gone the other way easily. And, you know, a lot of things, you know, like Mr. McConnell is like candidate quality matters. You know, that was his reaction, you know, as the results came in. Uh, And so in a lot of cases, like, was it the moderates winning or was it just that they were better than an extreme than a wacky. other? Right. Well, uh, that's fine. And you're not wrong about it. I will say, though, that the Democrats fielded an outstanding slate of candidates all across the country. Obviously, Fetterman's my fetish. I want to say that the ableism that Dr. Oz weaponized against Fetterman backfired which I think it, obviously none of the like, you know, normie, <laughs> neurotypical people are talking about. But I do think that Betterman's stroke and his bounce back produced a bunch of voter empathy, which is 
interesting and important and remarkable. And I think that Oz's vicious attacks on him that were clearly fundamentally ableist are a canary in the coal mine for a shifting understanding about uh, ableism and access to health care and the pandemic. And that's going to reverberate in in subsequent elections that a different awareness of like ability disability is going to change how people perceive candidates and candidacies and that's i think a very positive thing i mean also fetterman is going to i mean there was a tweet i saw that said (laughs) that said i hope that john fetterman now understands the assignment that his job is to bully the ever-loving shit out of jd vance every day in the senate until he dies and i love that because obviously jd vance is terrible and also tim ryan is sort of a wet noodle but I, i think you know and also ran a very centrist campaign that he lost and watching that that campaign was really telling and i think it should be a sign you know for democrats to adopt a more populist like style or a more relatable candidate like dr oz represents the kind of politician that made Democrats leave the Democratic Party, like yes. under Obama okay. and w- with Clinton on the ballot. They were like, these people aren't relatable. They're not speaking to me. Yeah. These are elites. And Dr. Oz was in that elite, uh, unrelatable camp of Canada. And so while, you know, the moderates and traditional style, like Democratic candidates did well, this uh, election, like this Bamberger it, it makes sense to focus less on candidates that are like from that traditional elite class of uh, lawyers, ex-CIA agents, and focus on candidates that have a broader, like it, who can talk to the working class. There are people who are obviously willing to defect between parties and it's on a candidate by candidate basis, yeah, right? Right. What did I say? Split ballot voting is a canary in the coal mine about realignment. So a couple of things about that. One, what I love about Oz losing and being crushed so terribly is that he's a fucking medical charlatan. And those people in this political moment just need to be buried politically. And so I like that. I also think that's one reason why J.D. Vance did so well. Like, people read that shitty-ass book and that sh- his charlatan bullshit about working-class Appalachian, you know, pop- populism and poverty. So it's it was one of the appeals of him. Uh, I do think that if, you know, I, we don't know what's going to happen in the Warnock-Walker runoff. I think that that's going to be very interesting about how the Democrats message the necessity for turning out for that special election with so much voter interest in politics this cycle and with the youngs showing up so hard. I think, this is my prediction, I think that Warnock does better without Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket. Yeah, I mean, I think Brian Kemp was a benefit to Herschel Walker. I agree completely. I think that he loses that without Kemp. I think a shitload of people in Georgia pulled a split ballot where they voted for Brian Kemp and they voted for Warnock. Also, I just don't see the Republicans getting their shit together to help him out, right? Like, there's going to be an infight on whether Trump gets to go to Georgia. I mean, oh, I want Trump to announce before Georgia. Please, like, let everybody pile on. See, this is the stuff. I, there's nobody 
like coordinating this. It's just like a complete nihilistic free for all in the GOP. And I, for one, am here for it. Like, does Trump announce before? Does he announce after? He's he's in a bunch more litigation, right? So a bunch of lawsuits against him were announced again this week. I mean, he is fucked 10 ways to Sunday. I think now Biden can fire Chris Ray, who is obviously garbage, right? And they can move forward in some uh, reform inside of the FBI, which I mean, whatever. Obviously, I, ha- I have minimal, I don't know, optimism about that, except that Ray is just such a garbage human being. So I think that there are opportunities here to really capitalize now that Biden has probably a majority in both houses, even if it's a simple majority in both houses moving forward to clean house. I think it's um, it. I think there is no reason for the Democrats not to just completely shout from the rooftops. That they have a mandate given that they beat back the inflation talk. They beat back the crime talk. They beat back the election deniers. They, I mean, they defended ground hardcore. I understand why people are shocked by it. And yet here we are. And I think that they need to leave with mandate. They're not out of the woods, though. But I agree that they should politically maneuver as if they have a mandate. I think that's, that's what makes sense. I mean, the Republicans do that, even when they don't. Getting that messaging right is is going to be big. But also the Democrats now in the Senate will have control of every single committee. They're going to be able to reshape the entire judiciary and finish those judicial confirmations. It's going to reshape the law. I think there's probably a real shot to do court balancing. I think they do pass codification of Roe, especially given how fucking hard Gretchen Whitmer flipped Michigan. And also, I think she will end up being a presidential contender, not in 2024 necessarily if Biden's health holds out, but I think she will be a top candidate moving forward for the Democrats. Minnesota, absolutely shocking. So the Midwest is changing and so is the Southwest. I mean, the Latinx community came out so hard in Nevada, that's going to massively change politics. Thank God for Harry Reid, who I think is easily one of the top five most important strategists on the Senate side in the last hundred years. I mean, just genius, but he built that entire, you know, democratic operation in Nevada for all intents and purposes. And he's the one who encouraged all of that Latinx build out for uh, capacity building and voter registrations. Like, so sexy. I mean, it's really great. So I don't know. I do think that there is a way in which the the news folks are not going to be able to grapple with the complexity of the changing realignment. That's not the story that they're telling. It is the story that they should be telling. It is realignment. Even when the margins are narrow, the thing is changing. People's interest in politics is shifting from forced teaming, D or R, to ideological dispositions towards power. That is bad for the Republicans. What stands out to me the most is that democracy did win. People outright rejected like extremism and conspiracy theories and election denial, which is extremely important and something that I wasn't confident would happen, which would almost doom elections to come. So I have a lot of optimism now about what can happen. Uh, I do think though Republicans are going to rethink their strategy, right? 
And yeah, but here's the thing. McConnell's health is terrible. He's not going to make it in the Senate much longer. He's obviously not going to be Senate majority leader. I don't even know if he'll be minority leader. And I think that there is no clear heir apparent. I mean, I'm sure McCarthy thinks it's him, but he's a chode and everybody knows he's a chode. Uh, I don't think that there's an heir apparent to think through what a new Republican Party could look like. And honestly, even if they could, it's too, they're too close to Trump right now to get away from him and the toxic effects of the January 6th commission, which now I imagine will ramp up even more because they're basically bulletproof. I think all of the talk about Liz Cheney being a spoiler speaker of the House, if the Republicans claim the House, is like such an epic troll. I am, even though obviously I don't have a bunch of warm fuzzies for Liz Cheney, I do like it as a troll of them about how many members of the GOP flipped, not just electeds, but also, you know, party loyalists within the party apparatus. So the realignment is huge and it's going to take a decade for people to really write through what's happening. And part of that's going to be made even harder because Twitter's melting down because of this Elon Musk, I guess you can call it, I don't know, an acquisition, but it's really just setting truckloads of money on fire. What a lunatic. But anyway, the disappearance of Twitter as a public sphere is going to be terrible. I would love to see the Biden administration buy it as a public utility. That'd be so hot. That's interesting. I haven't heard anyone (laughs) suggest that, but yeah, I mean, obviously little Joey Biden's not calling me, but if I were him, I would buy Twitter, wait for it to drop like so far and then buy it for pennies and turn it into a public utility. That'd be so baller. And it would also bring all those like internet, you know, 4chan trolley Reddit people. Yeah. It would have to be a regulated ecosystem. Um, it does beg the question about like the private institutions that run media and our like social lives on the internet, uh, and whether you know those should be left in the hands of spoiled billionaires. Yeah, spoiled bi- billionaires, or even like executive boards made of twelve spoiled billionaires, <laughs> yeah. which is the entire Fortune five hundred. I-, I think I think Republicans would tell you though that Ron DeSantis is. Too like, short to be president? The, <laughs> well, it does seem like there is an alignment towards uh, switching into him as a party leader and a potential uh, alternative to Trump in 2024. His lead in, in Florida was remarkable. And that no, used to it be wasn't. A- Charlie Chris is like Farrakhan. He is basically a reanimated corpse that they fucking weekend at Bernie's for this election. And it, that is a forced, it, that was an unforced error. They chose not to go young. They chose not to go, what did I say on the podcast last time? Go young and go brown. And they're like, what if we pick the oldest white dude Democrat we know and we make him run again, even though he's a loser. And that's what they did. It was totally a foreseeable error on their part. And DeSantis is younger and he's more golden boy. And he was going to win that handily every single time. That was not not great on their part. They didn't do their candidate work. And you're right. The corporate people want DeSantis more than Trump because Trump is now just such a liability because he's going to be convicted on a bunch of this stuff. But I don't think that DeSantis can win the country. 
It's certainly would, not now. I would hope not. He is very extreme. Not much better than Trump, just more like with a more respectable cover. He's just younger. <laughs> he doesn't have dementia or what he doesn't yeah. have the cognitive decline of age. He does he's just younger. That is all. He is the same brand of fascism. He's the same level of entitlement ideologically. He pulled so many Latinx votes though. Yes, that's because the Democratic Party is also racist and does not want to recruit in Hispanic communities. Again, an unforced error. It's just generic racism. Then they cannot rely on that. So, you know, I think kudos to the Democratic, you know, districts and states that are pouring money into Democratic Latinx outreach because that is where the game is going to be won or lost. But I think Florida... Texas and Ohio are lost for the foreseeable future because of gerrymandering, election engineering, and voter oppression. Also, can we please retire to this Beto bullshit? Like, he is not a winner. He's not going to be a winner. He cannot win. You're right about the voter suppression, though, because, I mean, a big problem for Democrats in Texas is Houston and how hard it is to vote in Houston, like the lines. Sure. Uh, and so that has to be reformed. Yeah. It, you have to make it easier for people to vote in the big cities in Texas. Yes. And yes. And the down ballot is not going to change there for a very long time to be able to make that the, the case. So I think, you know, I think Texas, Florida, and Ohio are permanently red, barring some massive catastrophe in those spaces. You know, that is like DEFCON 1. It's going to have to be generational, like until, unfortunately, the boomers age out. Mm -hmm. Or catastrophic wealth or catastrophic climate change thing. I mean, now, that said, you know, there are some interesting things happening in some of those places that are notable. But I think that they are gone in a way that perhaps the pundits cannot totally appreciate. But Gen Z is the thing that will flip Texas, um, especially because a bunch of those rural ag properties are not going to be able to sustain cattle, you know, in the future that they're inheriting. And so, like, the cows aren't going to save Texas politics. But, you know, that's neither here. (laughs) Can we talk about Arkansas? Yeah. We're not very cow forward here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Chickens all the way. But also, I mean, Arkansas has flawed voting laws. And I I read on Twitter, you know, in Arkansas, uh, the last day of early voting, there was only one polling place open in Pulaski County for Little Rock. And there were nine in Bend County, you know, 10 in Washington County. <laughs> like, and the demographics are different uh, between Pulaski County and like this overwhelmingly. Yeah, Pulaski County is is black. Yeah, it has a huge black population. Between Pulaski County and the Delta counties, that's where the majority of the black population in Arkansas resides. So, I you know I obviously I was like no on all four issues. They all four failed. Uh, that did not surprise me, even with the amount of money that the billionaire class put into this extremely shitty um, marijuana, you know, recreational marijuana ballot initiative that would have given them a complete cartel over weed and drop a bunch of money into the cops' hands. Um, that was good, right? Especially the ones that were fundamentally about eroding the power of the legislature. Obviously, Chris Jones lost. That was terrible. He's probably the best Democratic candidate that we have fielded f- for governor since Clinton. 
And I think probably he's better in a lot of ways than Bill. Uh, Huckabee Sanders administration, we can talk about what that's going to look like, but I think that was inevitable. I mean, she had a massive war chest and spent almost all of it on ads and none of it on campaigning. So she had a lot of time to fundraise and she didn't come to Arkansas and doesn't live here. Um, I think that obviously the congressional delegation went red, surprising nobody. None of those races were really seriously, you know, contested. The legislature, I mean, no surprises there. It was great that Ashley Hudson kept her seat and that Andrew Collins kept his seat. Those were major defensive campaigns that were super successful. It is too bad that Lisa Parks didn't pick up the, you know, new, newly gerrymandered seat with the electoral map. Um, in Northwest Arkansas, that was upsetting and disappointing, um, especially since it was a Senate seat. I think one of the biggest disappointments is that the House committee assignments happened on, what, Thursday? And so the Republicans in the Arkansas Senate passed a rule to not allow more than one Democrat to be seated on any of the Senate committees. Uh, some of them got two, but no more than that. So they couldn't make up a majority of any of the committees or stack committees with Democrats because there were so few of them, only 13 in the, in the Arkansas Senate. So that's going to be a real problem. So basically, Democrats are not going to be able to prevent any bills from coming out of the Senate committees to the Senate floor. I don't know that it was expected, but I'm not surprised by it. I think that the first thing that's going to come out of the Arkansas Legislative session in the spring will be a big, huge charter schools bill to destroy public education. I think there's going to be a bunch more anti-trans panic. I think there are going to be a bunch of bills that are exact replicas of the bills in Texas and Florida that are anti-trans. And so for our listeners who are in Arkansas, know that the ACLU is going to fight those bills and know that they're going to look exactly like Texas and Florida. And that the war on trans kids is going to expand in Arkansas in a really serious way. So if you're a parent, you need to be having conversations with your kids about not texting or speculating about who may or may not be LGBTQ in your kid's school, uh, because it is going to be that it's going to be that kind of super fascist authoritarian whisper campaign uh, battle against uh, LGBTQ, especially trans kids. So everybody needs to understand that that is absolutely coming and they're coming for public education. And if they get it, Arkansas is just going to massively regress. I mean, even further behind the rest of the country, we're already, what, 48 out of 50 in public education. So, yeah, I mean, it's disappointing. Uh, I, I don't see a path forward in this state in particular. The left hasn't been mobilized by anything. Like we didn't have things on the ballot to come out for. That will change in the next electoral cycle, but I just, I, it, it may be too little too late. It depends on what the exodus is going to look like. What scares me about this state, and I know it's similar in other states, is just how regressive the, the bills are getting and that it is accepted as like respectable. So in some ways, like the extremism and the conspiracy and like the clowning that was happening was kind of like a distraction, you know, almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it allowed a hyper authoritarian, like really regressive policies to like gain some credibility as like, well, we're not doing this crazy shit. We're, we're not over here denying elections, but. Well, I, here's what I will say. I think the election of Tim Griffin is probably the, of the constitutional office holders, the most 
concerning because he's the most extreme of the constitutional office holders. I think that Sarah Sanders made primary Tom Cotton, so she's not going to be in the governor's mansion for like the full eight years. There's no chance of that. The interesting thing about Arkansas, and one reason that I stay here working is because the voters overwhelmingly rejected anything that expanded the legislator, the legislature's ability to call new special sessions to do crazy appropriation stuff and or culture war things. And they voted against the ballot initiative that would make it harder to do subsequent ballot initiatives. So they want local rule. The Arkansas people want local rule. They want ballot initiatives to be easy. They don't want the legislature to, you know, um, be so heavy handed. And then they keep voting for the same people who are these heavy handed like legislative monsters. So there is a thing happening there, a dynamic happening there about what they think who is a good legislator. And then they turn around and vote against the ballot initiatives that are the opposite of who they voted for for the legislature. And part of that is really just political education. Um, I, I just, it's just going to get much worse there. And I would say across the South on the whole, you know, the news from the South is poor. Reconstruction failed. You know, all of the most regressive stuff is coming out of a lot of the Southern states. And it's going to stay that way for a long time until there's more, you know, infrastructure in the South and it can't be block grants. The other thing is that the court, the major corporations in the South, including, you know, Walmart here are funding these politicians. So they, they are not funding the opponents who are opposing this election denial, conspiracy theory, anti-public sphere stuff. So on the one hand, some of those third generation, you know, executives want an environment that they can live in and air to breathe. And then they also have a C4 that funds all of these, you know, climate change deniers. And it's like you can, you are undermining your own interests, self or otherwise. So that I think is going to continue in the South, which is a total bummer and is unsurprising. I do think that the way that this electoral cycle went down does create more space for larger conversations about climate change in the Biden administration that will be more progressive. And I am heartened by that. I will be curious to see what they come up with out of EPA potentially, but um, I don't think Mike Regan stays very long, so we'll see. But I, I do think there's an opportunity to have Green New Deal conversations now in a way that did not happen in the first two years. Can we talk about weird stuff that happened? Yeah, let's. Can I talk about three <laughs> weird things that I want to like flag? So I want to talk about Elizabeth Epps' campaign in Colorado for Congress. She ran as an abolitionist, just like full-on democratic socialist abolitionist in one incredible campaign, incredible woman. I think she's going to be great. Her campaign should be studied, you know, for how to build momentum, especially in purpley Western states. Um, great campaign. I want to talk about Toledo, Ohio. I'm from Ohio, obviously, and so I watch things there very carefully. So the city of Toledo, Ohio, last week wiped out $800,000 of medical debt for the entire medical debt of everybody in their town. They used their CARES Act money to wipe it out. That's incredible. Isn't that sick? 
They also they also protected abortion care in Toledo for like the longer there. So there's all kinds of really serious, interesting stuff happening in Toledo and sexy policy making that I think for people who are serious about left politics, Toledo is a case study. And then the third is this LA City City controller guy named Kenneth Mejia. And he's a CPA and he ran for LA controller and he's like, I do math. You might want a person who does math. And he had all of his supporters send in pictures of their pets. And then you got a detailed map of all of like the dog parks within 10 miles of your house. And, and he did these really creative, fun, playful, you know, we talk about play all the time in the podcast, playful billboards that were about math. And it's like, here's where your city dollars go. A gazillion of them go to jails, boo. And like four of them go to like housing the homeless, boo. And anyway, that that campaign, he's a totally a Gen Xer, young CPA, had the skills that very rarely match up for the people who run for the job. And he fucking crushed. And it was totally awesome and amazing. And I don't know, there are lots of other stories around the country about innovative campaign strategies, embracing, you know, the ethical commitments of the left in ways that were creative and innovative and fun and that really spoke in a totally different way to the electorate. And you know what I always say, Laura, contrast brings, right, the people to the yard and they created massive contrast and they won. On a different side of that is the fact that the DCCC gave zero dollars to Adam Frisch to support him against Lauren Boebert. That election has not yet been called as of the taping of this podcast. And also that is a total oversight. So I hope that there will be more accountability on the DCCC about which races they choose to contest. They need to contest every election denier and every fascist. And they need to put people up against in those in those races. So I want them to do better. But they also had a killer year, so, you know, lumps with sugar. Yeah, I think those examples that you were describing of exciting and transformative politics is like a model for how we should move forward. And I think about it like from that lean back perspective, there are certain candidates that are like, if you're afraid of the party line, if you're afraid of upsetting people or doing things differently, like those candidates, that they're not what's going to energize young voters. I mean, I, I think we're in a different moment where voters are not as party loyal and are willing to vote for people who can speak to them and who are legible to them as someone who isn't, you know, bought or <laughs> elite. So I think there's very much a sense of like, if you can do coalition building, if you can focus on a community aspect, if you can focus on healthcare, like Fetterman did, his health scare undergirded his argument about the importance of universal health care, like things like that, that are relatable and speak to the people and not to the institutions or the political machine. That's right. I mean, the people are aware of the structures more than I think that that they get credit for understanding. Like South Dakota passed Medicare expansion. They passed the Affordable Care Act. Like the left, lefty issues, even if they get sort of watered down to the center, are popular. And so the Democrats have got to stop running away. Defund was not a loser. 
It totally won. And the candidates who went all in on the cops lost. I mean, there is a really tremendous realignment happening that underscores how healthcare and gentrification in housing and policing, you know, and drugs and public education all go together. There is that conversation is happening and it's not happening because people are watching the mainstream like legacy media outlets. It's not, it's not happening because they're reading their local statewide paper. It's happening because they're talking to each other. So I think that Democrats, without a doubt, have everything to lose in 2024. It should be theirs for the taking. I think Trump staying in the news helps them. I think that they have some of the best candidates that they've ever recruited in my lifetime at the national and state levels. I think they have a bunch of models for creative policymaking. I think that they have an opportunity to totally reshape the judiciary and make a huge impact on uh, our climate policies. And I think that Joe Biden will end up as probably, this is so crazy and I can't even believe I'm saying it, but I think he goes down as one of the best Democratic presidents in the last 150 years. And I just can't even believe I have to say it out loud, but here we are and it's the truth. (laughs) And and, uh, he's been able to accomplish a lot. He has. He He just just has. has. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it. I mean, sometimes despite himself, he's accomplished it despite himself, but whatever the scoreboard matters, it matters the most. So I, you know, I hope he can hold his shit together through the next presidential uh, cycle. And I'm sure on the podcast, we'll be talking about that as we get closer to it. But I think there's no world in which Joe Biden cannot declare that he's running. That is like anybody who's saying that he should step down as a fucking fool. should shut their mouth. The Democrats certainly have a framework for winning with him as the candidate. And the Republicans are a hot mess right now. I mean, the hottest, they're going to come up against a Trump freight train. He's, if he doesn't win the nomination, I see him oh, trying to run as an independent. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be absolutely It's going to detonate. Self-inflicted wound. Yeah. Yep. You know, they're like a bunch of raccoons gnawing their own fucking feet off. It's amazing. I think that I think that they might make him the nominee just because they're afraid he'll run as a third party. He's going to threaten it. They're going to make him the nominee. He can't win. <laughs> I mean, I don't see a path forward where it they works for any other party. candidate. Who is going to... There's no Hail Mary here. There's. It is just like a walking liability. Everybody is a walking... It's like, you know, zombies exist in the cultural imaginary because they're actually walking among us, and these dudes are total zombies. They let this happen. Also, the Republican young stayed home because they're like, ooh, yuck. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't, I can't go out for this. So even the registered Republican voters and Gen Z were like, I'm a pass. They're also flippable. So I, I think that there is no world in which the next two years are not complete and total chaos. I hope to God Twitter exists so that we can watch it in real time. Um, if anybody at all on this earth cares about Elon Musk, please go get him a hug and some, (laughs) some intense therapies because he's about to lose his ass on this Twitter deal. I, I will say that the brightest spot in the last like three days has been watching all these parody accounts, just totally tank the stock of like Eli Lilly and Lockheed Martin. And it's been an abs, it's been total 
you know, chaos gremlins. I have Gen Z. God bless you. Keep doing it, man. Muck up the machine and rebuild it in your own image. What did I say when I did the prediction? I'm like, Gen, Gen X needs to get out of the way of Gen Z because they're coming up hard and they got ideas. So we got you, kids. We support you. We stand. <laughs>